0: Robert, Nasha Sana, Wana Safiwe. I won't do the sermon in Swahili, I won't get very far. I get a little bit, but not very far. It's good to be together this morning. Happy Father's Day uh, to you. I wished my father uh, a Happy Father's Day in the first sermon. He was watching uh, via live stream. My guess is he's preaching to his congregation right now. So that is a good example of a faithful father that I'm blessed to have. Uh, church, it's good to be with you. It's a great responsibility uh, and a great privilege to be entrusted to open God's word together. And this morning, you have uh, the experience of having the intern talk to you about money. So we'll see how that goes uh, together. But in that, uh, to that end, it is good that we ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we are grateful for the trustworthiness of your word. We are grateful that we can open it together and in so doing, learn more about you, becoming more like your son, Jesus. Father, we pray now that you would do what only you can do, illuminate your scriptures to our hearts and to our souls, that we may love you more because of the passage we have before us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Nothing says greed like a Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme is a simple enough idea. We have this fraudulent money manager that is raising fraudulent money. He goes to individuals, corporations, families, and takes their money with the promise of high and consistent returns. Well, if you know anything about Ponzi schemes, he makes that promise to a lot of other people as well. And what at first shows up as high and consistent returns are in fact just other people's money that he's taking from them. And so what that creates on the outside is this veneer of wealth, of fame, maybe of nice houses, of sports cars. But you start to investigate it a little bit, or better yet, people want to pull their money out or investors stop sending money in, and the whole thing collapses. It was a house built on stilts. And what normally happens is that money manager ends up behind bars. That is a poignant, and I I get it, an extreme example of what happens when we are consumed with and our identities defined by wealth. Now, I trust none of us here in the congregation this morning are embroiled in running a Ponzi scheme. But I think our uh, our two verses this morning will show us that none of us are outside the destructive and devastating reach of orienting our lives around material wealth at the expense of our eternal life. We're going to see that in two points this morning that correlate with the two verses in our passage that we'll be looking at, and you'll notice that those two verses are not in numerical order. We look at verse 20, and then we jump to verse 24, and we'll be following that same rhythm all summer as we look through the Sermon on the Plain, because those two verses and the thoughts in them are correlated together. We're not just taking two random verses out of Scripture to prove our point uh, with the the passage before us, they are certainly correlated and meant to be taken as one thought. So, our first point that we'll look through together comes from verse 20, and that is with Jesus, poverty is prosperous. With Jesus, poverty is prosperous. And our second verse, or second point coming from verse 24, without Jesus, wealth is worthless. Without Jesus, wealth is worthless. And together this morning, I hope we leave more convinced than when we came through the doors that our wealth is only found in the finished work of Christ Jesus upon the cross. So it has been a little bit since we have been in the book of Luke together. I trust the last sermon series was uh, beneficial and encouraging to you. I know it was to me greatly. But as we have worked through the first six chapters, first five chapters of Luke together and now end up here in six, we've been seeing a few things. Jesus has been going around and Jesus has been gaining a reputation. Jesus has been gaining a reputation for healing, for the casting out of demons, for the teaching with power. And the verses right before our uh, passage, Jesus has now called his disciples, so they are now following after him. And particularly as we've been in Luke in chapter 5 and as we move into chapter 6, we start to see a conflict arise. That conflict is between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes, or the religious elite of the day. And this summer, as we work through the Sermon on the Plain together, Jesus is going to define for us and to them what exactly the conflict is all about. Jesus, for us this summer, is going to draw some lines in the sand. He's going to say that my kingdom is different. It's maybe not what the religious elite of the day or maybe even us expected, but it's inaugurated, it's here on earth, and it's time to get on board. And he's going to do that by teaching about different kingdom aspects of what it means to live under his rule and reign, and how vastly those things are different than what is expected or what the culture says is right and good. So that's what we encounter here in, in verse 20 of chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke. The first kingdom aspect of what it means to live under the rule and reign of Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 20, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Now immediately we're confronted with the not so obvious problem unless you look back a few verses. In verses 17 through 19, great multitudes of people started following Jesus. Jesus has a wave of popularity that's happened as he's been healing and teaching. And his disciples run a very real risk of thinking that following Jesus might be a pretty profitable gig for them. You mean, all we have to do is follow this Jesus guy? He's teaching, he's healing. Man, they might just start start to feel proud, Or important. Maybe there will be some material gain. For the disciples. They might even be tempted. To start to put. The things of Jesus onto themselves. Being proud and important. But. Jesus is going to tell his disciples. And us this morning. That they need to first. Understand what kind of priorities. Matter most. In the kingdom that they just joined. And in making sure those priorities are clear to his disciples and to us, Jesus is going to lay out what is sometimes referred to as the great reversal. That is, what does it mean to belong to his kingdom? Well, it's reversed from what we would normally think. Where the first are last and the last first, where comfort and peace are only found in the rule and reign of King Jesus. The disciples and us this morning must grapple with these priorities of the kingdom, which are at complete odds with what is valued most in the world and certainly in our time. I don't think there's any better way for Jesus to do that than to first talk about money. But before we talk about money, I think we need to ask a question that can frame our time together this morning, maybe even frame our summer of study in the Sermon on the Plain. And that is, do we have kingdom priorities? And if we say we do, Is our money where our mouth is? Do we have kingdom priorities? And if we say we do, is our money where our mouth is? Okay, with those questions kind of framing our time together and fresh on our mind, let's go back to verse 20. And we come upon Jesus telling his disciples the first of the four blessings that we'll see and study this summer. And Jesus says, blessed are you who are poor. Before we go further, it's important to recognize a few things about Jesus saying, blessed are you who are poor, uh, or we risk completely misinterpreting the passage as a whole and we'll lose the whole point this morning. First, it's important to recognize that in this context, to be blessed means to be approved or favored by God. Blessed means to be approved or favored by God. This, of course, stands in stark contrast to what the world then and certainly what the world now would say about being blessed. Uh, in preparation for the sermon, I went to Instagram and typed into the search bar hashtag blessed. 183 million things popped up with the hashtag blessed. The first few think there was like a Ferrari, and it looked like a vacation to the Maldives, had the most like. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. That has nothing to do with being approved or favored by God. That's important to recognize as we dive into this passage this morning. Second, Jesus is not pronouncing a categorical blessing on poverty itself. There has been and will continue to be life threatening, destructive kind of poverty in this world. That's not the kind of poverty Jesus is talking about, and that will become clear here in a second. The third thing we need to make sure we're interpreting this passage correctly and not to miss the whole point. Jesus is not endorsing one social class over another social class. One commentator said it well when he said this, no ungodly poor people are ever exalted as models for emulation. No godly rich people who are generous and compassionate in their use of wealth are ever condemned. Jesus is not endorsing one social class over another. Lastly, Jesus' addressing of the poor should give us clue that there's additional context to be considered. The disciples listening to Jesus, certainly the Jews at large, would have had a very specific meaning for the poor. I think much different than the category you and I have as we enter this morning. Robert Gulick in his commentary on Luke, helps us greatly with, with our understanding of this and writes it better than I could. The poor in Judaism referred to those in desperate need, socioeconomic element, whose helplessness drove them to a dependent relationship with God, religious element. The supplying of their needs and their vindication. The two thoughts are intertwined in this passage. It's not just a material blessing that he's talking about, and it's not just a spiritual blessing. Those things are combined. Isaiah 61 1, quoted by Jesus in Luke chapter 4, gives us great insight into this. Jesus made it his mission statement to do what? In part, To proclaim good news to the poor. And as mentioned, this would have set an expectation for the people hearing this. They would have had an expectation for both material gain and to be spiritually vindicated. Their sin forgiven, made right with God. But now, Jesus is going going to give them a full and complete picture of what that good news is he came to proclaim. As Jesus is talking to the faithfully impoverished, he is revealing to them that at first, this blessing is to be a spiritual one. Now, to be clear, it won't always be a spiritual one. Craig Blomberg helps us here. This does not mean that the Old Testament promises are entirely spiritualized. God's people from both Old and New Testament ages will one day enjoy all the literal blessings of the land, material, extended to encompass the entire earth, and eventually a redeemed cosmos. But that is not yet. And that is, Jesus, that is what Jesus is going to tell them. Okay, so now we have a foundation for this passage together. We've set the scene for the book of Luke Chapter 6, verse 20, and Jesus enters into the conversation about money. There is no doubt that the clearest indicator of where our priorities lie is what we do with and our attitude surrounding earthly possessions. Don't take my word for it. Don't take my word. Take Jesus' word. In Matthew chapter 6, we all are pretty familiar with it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So it's no wonder Jesus "Go straight for money. And when we dwell on that, Jesus' kingdom priorities start to become a bit more clear. His blessing of the poor starts to become a bit more clear. The poor, who have very little or nothing, realize that they must totally rely on God to meet all their needs. The poor, who have nothing on their own to give, so they must rely on the mercy of God. They can't fool themselves into thinking they can somehow pay or earn God's mercy. The poor have little to be happy about in this life, but the inauguration of God's kingdom with the coming of Christ changes that. The poor have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Your poverty will be prosperous when you rely on God's provision and not man's and seek his kingdom. I hope you're starting to see and understand a bit how Jesus is flipping the script. Jesus uses the poor to show complete dependence. And reliance on God is the only way to enter into his kingdom. Some of you this morning might be able to identify with the poor that Jesus is talking about. Some of us in the congregation are just barely making it. The faithful poor. It feels as if your head is just above water. Friend, I would exhort you to be faithful with little. And in due time, Jesus will give you much. Now, it will be much more than material wealth or riches. It will be an everlasting kingdom with him on the throne. I also recognize that there could be a very real temptation for those among us in that category to covet what the lord has given to you and not to others in doing so we devalue whose people's whose people whose things people cover. we devalue the thi- the people whose things we covet there we go we devalue the people whose things we covet caring more for their things than we do their heart or their soul Be on guard, brothers and sisters. Poverty can lead us into sin just as much as wealth. This morning, some of you may find yourselves without a job. I grieve with you. You don't know where your next paycheck is coming from. You are in a pinch. Friend, just because you don't have a job does not mean there is not important work from your father to do. You are an ambassador. Go and shine your light before men that they may see and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, Jesus does not just stop with a pronouncement of blessing upon the poor. He quantifies that blessing to them. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to notice something that's very important about this verse. Jesus doesn't say blessed are you who are poor for yours will be the kingdom of God. What does he say? Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. In their dependence and humbleness before the king, without anything to offer of worldly value, Jesus says yours is the kingdom. Now, Jesus can say this because his kingdom is now and not yet. Right now, when we give our life over and put our faith, hope, and trust in King Jesus, we are reconciled to him, forgiven of our sin, spiritually made new, transformed through his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. His kingdom is ushered into our lives as we live under his great rule and reign. That changes everything. We are now active participants in his kingdom. But we still recognize that not everything is yet made new. Not yet has Satan been fully and finally defeated. Not yet has physical death and disease and extreme poverty been eradicated not yet has jesus come ushering the new heavens and the new earth so we wait but until then we join with christ in his kingdom in a position and attitude of dependence to the king and in doing so We live out the famous words of missionary martyr Jim Elliot. He says, "We give what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose." That moves us into our second point this morning, found from verse 24, "Without Jesus, wealth is worthless." Without Jesus, wealth is worthless. Verse 24 But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Verse 24 starts with a woe. Now, as modern readers, I think woe is lost on us a little bit. We might think of ourselves walking down a sidewalk. And as we walk down that sidewalk, we see a group of people gathered there. And you might be a curious person like myself, so let's go see what all this commotion is all about. And as you walk into this group of people, the speaker in the middle of the group says, Whoa! If you're anything like me, you start to look around. Right? Anything cool happening? Batman? Superman? Cool airplane? Nope. You might move on. From that conversation, you might move on from that group and have no idea why that speaker was pronouncing a woe. That's kind of how I feel as I entered into this passage. I don't know what a woe is, but a, the woe is super important that we might hear Jesus' heart in this passion, in this passage. A woe in this context is an expression of regret or compassion, an expression of regret. And compassion. It's not a threat made by Jesus. It's not saying something's really cool. Another way to read woe in this passage is how terrible. How terrible, you who are rich. Now we start to get a bit of the force with which Jesus is talking. Or maybe how sad. For the people who, with their dependence and hope squarely on the wealth of this life, check items off their bucket list, travel the world, buy the newest, greatest sports car they've always wanted without any regard for Christ Jesus. And in doing so, speed toward a Christless eternity. Now we start to get a bit of the woe with which Jesus is talking. Now I get it. At face value, this seems like a crazy statement. For the crowd that Jesus was talking to, and maybe for us here this morning, that sounds like a crazy statement. Did he say rich? Really? The rich seemingly have it all together. Wealth, security, prosperity, and comfort. They have done it themselves, and they don't need any help From anyone. Are you beginning to see why Jesus might be calling out the rich here? It has nothing to do intrinsically with the wealth itself. That's important to recognize. The problem that Jesus is addressing to these rich is that they don't need or want a king. Because that king can't do anything for them. When Jesus says, woe to the rich, he is emphasizing that comfort cannot be mistaken for blessedness. Material comfort and the dependence upon it is a message of a false gospel. A false gospel that I fear too many of us have bought hook, line, and sinker. Wealth predisposes us to think that we have need of nothing. We rely on our riches and not on the God who gave them to us. This is the very opposite of what it means to be a Jesus follower. Our sinful minds are fooled to think that with our riches, we have found the comfort and rest that we each long for. It is impossible to find without King Jesus. But Jesus is not done yet. He continues on in verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Those who put their hope in and priority around the riches of this life will have received all that they are going to. They might have the happiness and comfort in this life, but they will certainly not in the life to come. So what does this mean for us? What do we do with Jesus' words of blessed are you who are poor and woe to the rich? It does not take looking around long to recognize that in our time and in our culture, Jesus' words apply directly to every single one of us. No matter which camp we fall in, rich or poor, or somewhere in the middle, we live in a time and place where riches and material wealth are the things that are valued most. On top of that, historically speaking, we are the richest, most prosperous people to ever exist on the plate on the face of the planet so does that mean for us this morning it's impossible to be blessed by the lord jesus of course not but it does mean that we must check our motives and our hearts to see if they align with jesus's and his kingdom or if they align with a false gospel of prosperity So what do we do with that? What action can we take? How can we become more in line with Christ and his kingdom? Our default position as Jesus followers in Castleton, Indiana, in the year 2022, should be to be generous with what the Lord has given to us. Certainly our gifts and our talents and our time, but Jesus doesn't land on that this morning. He lands on money. We should give of those things often, and give generously. We should give to Christ's kingdom purposes. Yes, without question, we should give to the local church. We should give to Great Commission work, our global partners. We should give locally to ministries here in Indiana, and we should give as the Lord leads us and the Lord guides us. This is a, this is a non-negotiable part of the Christian life. It became negotiable somewhere along the way, but there is no category in Scripture for us to not do this. What do you do with that bonus that comes in from that great quarter at work? Have you considered how that might be used to further Christ in his kingdom? Or is it earmarked for the newest toy? How about the thousands you made on the sale of your home in this market? Have you wrestled before the Lord with how much to give to his kingdom? Or is that just rolled over into the next house? Let's get get kind of crazy here, guys. Have you considered capping your income and giving the rest away for the glory of God and his kingdom? I get it. For some of you, that will feel crazy. That will feel unwise and unheard of. David Platt, in his book, Radical, which I highly recommend, speaks to that thought. Are you and I looking to Jesus for advice that seems fiscally responsible according to the standards of the world around us? Or are we looking to Jesus for total leadership in our lives? Even if that means going against our affluent culture and maybe even our affluent religious neighbor? I was once encouraged in this area by a family that I was talking to. Impressed by the Lord to give more than they were giving, they went to their budget to see where they could find the extra money. As they looked at their budget and prayed before the Lord as a family, what they found the Lord was asking them to do was not super fiscally sound. In obedience, for a season of their life, they gave their grocery money every month. And what struck me from this conversation that I was having with this family was not how the few extra hundred dollars a month made impact in the kingdom, though I'm sure it did. What struck me most was their joy in telling this story. Not joy that they were no longer doing that, but joy because of the faith-building exercise it was. They had, off the top of their, they gave us like five examples of how the Lord very specifically met their need exactly when they needed it. Now, I don't tell you about that family so that you'll go home and give away your grocery money. But on the other hand, I'm not telling you to not give away your grocery money. According to Google, on average, a church-going Christian gives 2.5% of their income to the church, 2.5% to the church. And so even if you add a couple extra percentage points on there for kingdom work, which is, which is generous, that number is still woefully low. How it turns out practically in most churches is a few give most and many don't give at all. Church in obedience with dependence on the Lord As I mentioned earlier, Jesus has left no category to not give. None. And so if you're here this morning, and if you feel convicted to to give more, maybe start giving for the first time, that probably means giving up something good. That Starbucks five days a week, seven days a week, what if that just turned into a a once-a-week treat? What happens instead of eating out all the time? What if that became a rarity? And in turn, that money was used for kingdom purposes. It's not easy. It's certainly not convenient. But it is obedient. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't pause for a second and recognize that some of you are giving sacrificially and you're giving anonymously. You give your first fruits to Christ and his kingdom. Thank you for the example you set for us. I will encourage you with that while I never know, we may never know the specifics of what you did, God does. Keep it up. Your faithful obedience is one we can encourage and emulate. One of my favorite things as a a member here at Castleton is quarterly member meetings. I love those things. Not as much as Eric, but I love them, okay? And one of my favorite things is something that I think we pass by pretty quick is when Ken uh, gets up here and before him, Brian, and they give us the financials for the quarter. Right, Where do we stand? Where's giving? All that good stuff. And without fail, the last four years, they have said nothing other than, thank you, keep doing what you are doing. And that speaks volume to our church body and to our community. So for those of you that are, thank you. Keep doing what you are doing in humbleness and dependence upon the Lord. Now this uh, will be different for each of us as we respond To Jesus' words here, wisdom is needed in our giving. We could go on for a second sermon, but it's second, second service. You guys are getting hungry, so am I, so we won't go there this time. Maybe next time. For some of us, he will call to radical abandonment. Sell everything. Give to his kingdom. That's on the table for us as Christ followers. It must be. But what's equally on the table for us as Christ followers is quiet obedience to the Lord, to faithfully and cheerfully give, orienting our lives around his kingdom and not material wealth. Seek after the Lord Jesus and his kingdom and respond in obedience when the Lord prompts. He always has and he always will. I also think there's a a word for us fathers here too in how we deal with our wealth? What do we want our kids to see? What examples are we setting for them with how we spend our money? Are we setting the example that our money and our possessions are Christ's first? That we use them as he wills? Or are we setting the example and expectation that the wealth of this world defines us? Now, if we had to choose between the two, of course we're all going to say we want our wealth to be used for kingdom purposes and for our kids to see that. But when we are long and gone, will they remember kingdom impact? Or will they have memories that have long since faded of the newest and greatest toys? Pastor John Piper says it this way. The possession of money in this world is a test for eternity. Can you pass the test of faithfulness with your money? Do you use it as a means of proving the worth of God and the joy you have in supporting his cause? Or does the way you use it prove that what you really enjoy is things, not God? Now some of you might be sitting here this morning really confused. You don't yet Follow Jesus. You have never been invited into this kingdom of which I am talking about. I hope you now know that this kingdom is a different one. We don't hoard in this kingdom we give. In this kingdom, the first or last and the last first. We find peace and abundant life only as we follow Jesus. If that's you, I invite you into this kingdom this morning. I invite you to find your wealth, your purpose, and new life in the finished work of Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians 8-9, says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus became nothing. So that you and I can have everything. If you don't yet follow Jesus, we would love to tell you what it means to come into his kingdom under his rule and reign. Talk to a Christian friend. Talk to who brought you. Find someone at the church. There would be nothing more we would like to do. And for those of us who do follow Jesus, I return to the earlier questions I asked Do you have kingdom priorities? And is your money where your mouth is? Rich or poor, middle class or upper class, teacher or CEO, retired or student, take King Jesus at his word. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for the transforming power that it has. And we ask now that as we wrestle with these kingdom priorities and even more specifically what we should do with our money, we pray that your Holy Spirit would lead and guide us, that we may be found faithful with little and in turn receive much. Father, we thank you for your Son Jesus, his death and resurrection, and the kingdom for which we are now apart. We bless you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.